This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Do big tech companies like Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook pay their fair share in taxes? It's a question that governments around the world, including here in the UK, are asking. For many, the answer is no. And the solution is a digital tax. Professor Aviona, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having yeah, me. It's a pleasure to have you on. You know, over over the past couple of years, we've seen, I think it's fair to say, mounting anger over the perception that big tech companies don't pay their fair share of taxes. And the issues emerged in a lot of countries, certainly in Canada, it even emerged during the Canadian federal election last year, with at least one party claiming, I must admit, without evidence, as far as I can tell, that that Amazon paid no tax in Canada. And so as it's emerged as an issue, as I say, in Canada and many other places, we've seen global negotiations on finding a new way to address these revenues, uh, which have also sparked some threats or promises to create new digital services taxes, and then in turn, threats of trade retaliation, most notably from the United States. So Canada now finds itself embroiled in just such a battle with the US. And as I say, I'm grateful that you've come on the podcast to help unpack the issue. Why don't we start with at the beginning, in a sense, uh, you know, how have all this come about? And how has or why has digital tax policy emerged as a major issue? So this basically started with the financial crisis of 2008 to 2010, where there was a lot of countries that implemented austerity measures. And at the same time, there were hearings, for example, in the UK Parliament, also in the US Senate, about the fact that the big tech companies, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, etc., did not pay too much tax in the countries that they were operating. And this was basically because the traditional or current way international taxation is managed as far as income tax is concerned, is that you need to have a physical presence in the country that seeks to tax you in order to be subject to tax. And the thing about these companies is that they do not need a physical presence to be operating in a country. In fact, in the case of Google or Facebook, uh, what they basically are selling is their use of data, and they don't need to receive even any revenues from a country. They can get their revenues from advertising somewhere else. Uh, And in case of Amazon, for example, when they sell 
stuff into a country, they do not need to have a physical presence there. They can ship from overseas. So the first to implement one were the UK, and then uh, it spread to other countries. The most advanced one at the moment is the French one. Uh, and about 30 countries all over the world have been implementing them or in some stage of implementing them at the moment through last year where, as we will discuss, uh, there has been a deal to put them on hold for a while. Okay, so we've seen this proliferate. Why don't we, to, just before we get into sort of what's taken place globally, can you explain a little bit how these digital service taxes, DSTs, function? So you said there's you know, a lot of countries now that have, are at various stages of trying to implement them. How do they function? How do they vary from some of the more conventional tax measures? So the main difference is that they do not require uh, the company to have any kind of presence in a country or even any kind of revenue it's enough that they use the data of the people uh, in the country to uh, derive revenue. And the way they operate is basically it's a, usually what's called a gross-based tax, that is a tax without any deduction attached to it. It's more like the GST in Canada in that way. And it is usually relatively small percentage because of that. The Canadian proposal is 3%. That's pretty typical. The French tax is 3%. Uh, so it's implemented on any kind of digital services, including advertising, including sales, including you know, streaming movies or anything like that, that is provided. And usually it only applies to really large corporations. I mean, the, the cutoff in the EU and the one proposed in Canada also is about $750 million in revenue. Uh, the cutoff in uh, the OECD proposal is even higher than that. Uh, so it's really designed to attack only the uh, big tech companies. And since all the ones that operate globally at the moment are American companies, that's precisely the reason that the US has been alarmed at this, because it seems like a tax that is really designed to only tax the Americans and nobody else. Okay, so clearly it does target big tech in that sense. How, you know, how, how easy is it or how hard is it to for these companies to comply? You mentioned that we've seen this pop up in a number of different places. You know, when you start talking about thresholds and different kinds of revenue, is it is it straightforward or do is some of the response that we see from some of these companies saying, hey, we'll pay our fair share, but uh, this is challenging to comply with? It's not actually that challenging to comply with. I don't think compliance is a significant issue. The French tax, which has been implemented, uh, has been paid by the big tech. The only issue that is relevant, I think, to some extent from a political perspective is that they, what the companies say is that they are in a position, since they are quasi-monopolies, to transfer the tax burden onto their consumers. So Amazon, for example, has already explained that the French tax of 3% will result in a rise of 3% in the prices that they are charged for the products. And so far, that seems to have, in that way too, it's similar to a GST, because it's essentially a tax on consumers rather than on the big tech. But that's something that uh, the politicians, of course, do not emphasize too much because they want to see this as a tax on the big tech companies and not on the local consumer. Yeah, it's just interesting that at the end of the day, I suppose we often feel that's the case no matter what the tax is. It's, it's the consumer that pays. It's interesting that that correlation is as direct as it is, at least with some companies. Now, you, you described it as, as being perceived by some to be even an attack on, on those large U.S. tech companies. They're the ones that are most obviously targeted. Uh, you mentioned the alarm in the United States. How has the U.S. responded uh, to these proposals or the implementation in some countries? 
So the US under the Trump administration responded very forcefully. They basically did two things. One is they changed the US tax rules in such a way as to make sure that no American foreign tax credit will be given to, for these taxes, namely that you can never receive a refund from the US Treasury for any, any such tax, as opposed to, for example, Canadian income tax or any normal tax. And the second thing is that they threatened to use a trade law in retaliation specifically for any country. Uh, and in the case of the French, they've actually started implementing those until the global deal was struck. And at that point, they put all of this retaliation on hold, but they could certainly restart it in case the global deal does not happen. Okay, I want to get to that global deal in just a sec, but I just want to make sure I understand the implications of both of those responses that we've seen from the United States. So, so I take it that you're saying that, in terms of uh, on the on that first point, the companies that pay in other jurisdictions don't get credit in effect for having paid that tax in other jurisdictions. It's uh, a, it's a net cost, which I suppose is designed to sort of spark opposition from those companies. Is that part of the thinking? Yes, because what the companies really would have liked. I think is for the tax to be creditable. And in fact, it is within the ability of the US Treasury to make this tax to be creditable. It's not entirely clear that under pre-existing rules, it wouldn't be necessarily a creditable tax. And the creditable tax means a tax where you get a dollar for dollar offset against your American taxes for the tax that you pay. But under the previous administration, uh, regulations were adopted to make sure that that does not happen. And as you point out, that has certainly increased the desire of the big tech companies to make sure that this tax is not, in fact, levied on them. Okay. So there is a real cost, at least in when you've got that kind of rule in place in terms of the additional payments that are made from a tax perspective. From a, a retaliation perspective that we've seen um, from the USTR in the United States, let's say against France, what were some of the kinds of things that they were, they were contemplating or said that they wanted to go ahead and do? So what's strange about trade law uh, is that you can retaliate against anything. That is, if you uh, take the position that some countries' rules are discriminatory or otherwise in illegitimate under a trade law perspective, you can impose tariffs and the tariffs can be imposed on something completely different. And you typically impose the tariffs on the thing that you think will harm the other party the most. So the French tariffs, for example, were imposed on luxury goods like you know, Louis Vuitton, uh, handbags and on champagne and on cheese and all these other things that are the main French export that have nothing to do with big tech or digital services or anything like that. And, and that's simply in order to persuade the other country to give up on its uh, arguably offending measures. I guess the toolbox of, of retaliation includes the fact that there's going to be real costs, which are ultimately passed on to the consumers, as well as the threat of retaliation against some of the more sensitive industries that are out there. I suppose those kinds of concerns and that kind of tug of war that can exist, I assume is part of what has sparked efforts to try to develop a global solution at the OECD. And last fall, those efforts appear to bear some fruit. Can you talk a bit about that process as a starting point? What was taking place at the OECD? So the OECD has traditionally been the organization that has been at the forefront of designing international tax rules. And they felt uh, that the rules of the game were slipping away from them because these taxes are all not subject to the US International Tax Treaty Network because they're not income taxes. And therefore the concern was that basically because the existing network was 
arguably obsolete because of the physical presence requirement, more and more, as more and more countries were adopted as non-income taxes, uh, essentially the OECD will become irrelevant. And so they started the process, especially uh, with European support to try to revise the international tax rule in such a way as to apply them to the big tech companies. And this too met with significant resistance from the United States under the Trump administration, uh, so much so that they basically said, we're not going to cooperate. And if the Americans did not cooperate, it would have been hard to get this moving because the OECD is a consensus-based organization and every country has a veto. Uh, but under the Biden administration, this changed because the administration said, we're okay with it as long as it is defined in such a way as not only apply to the American big tech companies. So they redefined this to apply to every large company with a sufficiently large profit margin. So a company basically needs to have 20 billion euros in revenue and a 10% profit margin. And that includes all the American big tech companies, which had much higher profit margins, especially during the pandemic. But it also includes quite a bit of other companies, including European companies, uh, and therefore, it's not regarded as, as discriminatory. And then the way they struck the deal was to say that for those companies, 25% uh, of the profits above a certain threshold will be allocated to the market countries where they have their consumers or where they have their users, regardless of whether they have a physical presence in them. And that is the key to the deal because it basically means an update to the whole international tax regime that has been around for 100 years and has really never been updated on this point to make it possible. And the 25% is just an arbitrary number chosen as a political compromise. It basically means that the US gets to tax 75% uh, of the profit of the big tech and the other 25 is allocated proportionately among the countries, the foreign countries in which these companies operate. What, that, that's interesting to see that kind of political compromise take place. So that's not now the system no longer is just about big tech, as you say, but now incorporates any number of other countries with similar kinds of proportions in terms of uh, who gets tax, who gets to share in the tax revenue. It's been estimated that with this kind of cutoff, it's about 100 large multinationals that will be covered between 80 and 100. And it includes, I don't know whether there are any Canadian multinationals, I suspect that there may be. I know uh, that in a country like New Zealand, for example, they told me already they don't have any companies that reach this threshold, so they're not that concerned about it. Uh, Australia does have some, the Europeans have several. Uh, if you look at the list, uh, and you know, the list is more or less public now, uh, more, most of the companies are still American, but there are enough non-American companies politically to make this possible in the United States to present this as a victory, as opposed to the previous rules and as opposed to the digital services taxes, which really only apply to the Americans because of the way they're defined. Right. So, uh, you know, based on what you've described it, that suggests that, you know, it, it may not be quite a wash in the United States, but at least there's some flowing in and some flowing out. But for a country, let's say like New Zealand or perhaps of Canada, if they don't have any, any companies on that list, it sounds like there's a pretty strong net benefit to this deal. There, there's the prospect of new revenues coming in from that share in the 25%, and they don't really have any companies that are affected where you're losing that same proportion. Yes, I think that's right. And the other thing to mention is that under the current arrangement, it's not 
really true that most of this profit gets taxed even by the United States. It's not as if the profit is simply shifted from the United States where it is taxed to some other countries where it is taxed. Under the current rule, most of this profit is not taxed anywhere because the multinationals have devised under the existing arrangement all kinds of uh, transactions which enable them to locate the profit nominally in countries where not, they're not subject to tax at all, so-called tax havens. And even though uh, there's also talk about imposing a minimum tax under the current American rules, for example, the minimum tax level is very low, uh, 10.5%, and in many other countries, it doesn't exist at all. So the multinationals have been able to essentially get away with not paying no tax on this revenue, which is part of what is driving the concern. Part of that OECD deal um, appears to have agreed to some sort of standstill on the new DSTs, recognizing that it's going to take a couple of years to implement this, assuming this is implemented. What would this? What does this this proposed standstill do with respect to uh, either new or proposed DSTs? So the the current agreement says that before January 1, 2024, all these existing DSTs are. Uh, frozen, that is, they're not going to be collected, and any and any country that signed on to the deal, which is 137 countries, so it's basically most of the world, promised not to implement any new DST. On the other hand, uh, and this is pending either January 1, 2024, or until there is a, there's supposed to be a new multilateral tax treaty uh, designed in the, last, in the next two years, and once that comes into effect, then countries will give up permanently on the ability to implement DSTs. Uh, but if either of these things don't happen, that is if the multilateral convention uh, does not happen or you know, before January 1, 2024, and you get to that point, then countries are again free to implement them. Okay. So we've got a, a period of time now where there's the, obviously these efforts to try to bring this to fruition, given how many countries now have a, have a stake in all of this. Uh, that If it doesn't work out, then I guess countries resume with DSTs. And if it, if it, if it does work out, if they do get that kind of implement, if they do get that implementation, then um, you've moved, we've moved into a, a new era in terms of how to approach the issue. Towards the end of last year, our finance minister, Krista Freeland, um, announced that Canada was going to move forward with legislation uh, that wouldn't take effect until 2024, but would have the effect of being both retroactive and try to move forward with a DST now. And we certainly have had some suggest that that's inconsistent with the letter, if not the spirit of the OEC deal. Uh, what are some of your views on, on both the Canadian, on this Canadian approach most recently, as well as uh, how has the U.S. reacted to it? So the U.S. hasn't reacted very much so far, except, except expressing concern, which is what they do first. I mean, they haven't, I mean, they, in order to apply retaliatory tariffs, for example, they need to publish a notice, they need to go through a procedure, which is what they did with the French and some other countries that have actually implemented this. And since the Canadian proposal is only a proposal, they haven't really done anything so far, even though it is likely to be implemented legislation. As far as whether this is consistent with the OECD deal, my sense is that it is consistent with it because the OECD deal is premised on the notion that there will be this multilateral treaty before 2024. And after that, countries are free to do it as much as they were free before. The retroactivity issue is debatable. That is, you could say that during the standstill period, these taxes should not be applied even retroactively. But, you know, I think countries are sovereign and they're able to 
do these things as long as they haven't signed on to anything else. And I think what Canada signed on to in the deal does not preclude them from implementing this uh, in 2024. Interesting. So certainly possible in 2024 raises some questions and it certainly has sparked at least some initial response from the United States now. You know, the, I think it's clear everybody would agree that this is so these are legitimate concerns. You, you talked about the the way these companies have managed to structure themselves in a manner that they oftentimes don't pay much tax at all, much less primarily tax to the United States. How do you think? Why don't we wrap with this? How do you think uh, the the issue is best addressed? Is the is the OEC deal sort of the 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 best we can hope for, uh, or do you see other possibilities that uh, we ought to be considering in terms of trying to institute greater tax fairness for for companies that are obviously some of the, now the most powerful in the world? I mean, I certainly think that the OECD deal, if it is implemented, is not a bad compromise solution. I mean, I would have liked to see a higher percentage allocated to the market countries, like 50%. But you know, if that's a political deal that can be reached, that's a political deal, uh, and that's fine. The problem that I have is that I think it is reasonably likely that this will not be implemented, at least as written, because I think, for example, in the United States, you have to implement it by treaty. I mean, one of the big things about this particular part of the OECD deal, there's another part that is more feasible, is that you need to change every single tax treaty in the world. There are over 3,000 of them because they all incorporate this physical presence requirement. In order to do that, I mean, that's never been done. In order to do that, the OECD has to draft a multilateral convention that every single country that signed the agreement in principle will ratify essentially simultaneously. I think it is extraordinarily unlikely that this treaty can get ratified in the United States. In general, the Republicans are against any kind of multilateral treaties. Uh, The big tech are not big fans of this. And as a result, I think it is, you know, you need 67 votes in the Senate, meaning the Democrats can't pass this alone. There's been some discussion about maybe this can be done in the way some trade agreements were done, but it's not a process that can move very fast. The Republicans are likely to increase their representation in Congress in the fall. And that would mean that you can't do it the other way also because they would control the House of Representatives likely. And so without the United States, it's at least plausible that the deal will fall apart. And that means that countries will revert to implementing the DSTs. My own view, frankly, on the DSTs is that they're not as big of a deal as the United States makes them to be. If Canada wants to essentially increase the GST rate by 3% for certain kinds of digital transactions, uh, that is essentially going to get paid fundamentally mostly by Canadian consumers, I think that's Canada's issue. And I don't think the United States should intervene or apply retaliatory tariffs. And if, if this deal collapses and there are, you know, 30, 50 uh, countries in the world that implement these DSTs, I don't think the US threat of retaliation is via tariffs is credible. It means one thing if it's only the French, it's another thing if it's most of the world. And I think at that point, the Americans are more likely to withdraw and what the companies will then get is foreign tax credit for these taxes, which as I said, is perfectly feasible. We just need to change the existing regulation uh, because that's what they really want ultimately not to have to bear the burden. And the burden is I think small enough at the percentages that we're talking about that this is a much more feasible outcome, I think, than what the OECD has in mind. That's really interesting. So you're suggesting really that that we, that we may end up at, at much the same kind of place, but do it without without that OEC deal if they're unable to reach agreement. Instead, 
countries move ahead, consumers ultimately pay the tax or most of that tax. And the US just kind of acknowledges the reality that if the rest of the world has moved forward with this, they're not going to disadvantage their companies any further by instead giving them credit for the taxes that are paid within those other jurisdictions. I think that's a more likely outcome than implementing the OECD deal, however much I like it in theory. And certainly an issue that I think a lot of people are going to be paying close attention to. The the, the tax fairness issue certainly continues. The trade retaliation issues obviously attract a lot of attention and uh, consumers uh, paying much of the freight, I suppose, uh, when we see this implemented domestically. Um, Professor Aviona, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.